This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Bookshelf on ABC RN and via podcast. I'm Cassie McCullough. And today on your weekly review of new fiction, a book that made me laugh out loud, which really doesn't happen all that often. But American Mermaid is something out of the ordinary. It's the story of a poor school teacher who writes an instant bestseller about an androgynous underwater eco-warrior which is snapped up by Hollywood producers who want to turn her into a sexy teen superhero in a clamshell bra. And that's when the trouble begins. It's by debut author Julia Langbean. Amazing. Also, from Australia's Stephanie Bishop, The Anniversary, which comes with a marriage between a bright young uni student and her film lecturer, which is full of... Well, creative tension, as well as a mystery surrounding a dream cruise that ends with a man overboard. Now, usually, of course, I'm here with co-host Kate Evans, but once again this week, we're bookshelving without her, but she'll be back soon. Chris Flynn is the author of four books, including the novel Mammoth, which is told from the perspective of the fossilised remains of, yes, a woolly mammoth. Indeed, a 13,354-year-old mammoth called Mammut, who lives in a natural history museum. His most recent work is the short story collection Here Be Leviathans, which saw him described as, quote, a maestro of the wryly compelling non-human narrator. And that's because the stories are told from a range of unusual perspectives, a hotel room, an airline seat, a grizzly bear who's on the run after eating a teenager. And when his mind's not communing with unexpected voices, he's editor-in-residence at Museums Victoria. And I'm delighted to say that after reviewing his books, he's finally here on the bookshelf. Chris, hello. Hello, Cassie. Finally, you get me on. What was the dallyo there? <laughs> I don't know. In fact, I think we went to some collective m- misunderstanding and we thought you'd been on numerous times. And in fact, we, we <laughs> neglected to invite you, which was surely an oversight on our point of view. It was preying on my mind, I have to say. <laughs> now, that book here, B. Leviathans, still rattles around in my head. My favourite, I know that it's not fair to say that there are favourites in a short story collection, but I loved the story about the hotel room. Can you remind us of that story? I didn't think anyone would really like that story, to be honest. So it surprises me when people tell me that it's their favourite. So the story is from the point of view of a sentient hotel room and a couple check in on their wedding night and the hotel room um, tries to make the night as, as, as good as it possibly can for this young couple. Um, thinking it will never see them again. However, it has an unusual opportunity with this couple because they keep returning to the room every few years to celebrate their anniversary. And so for the first time in its existence, the hotel room gets to see the course of a marriage or the course of a life unfold uh, and tries its best to influence them and help them. (laughs) I've never been able to think of a hotel room in quite the same way following that. And, of course, the airline seat, which is tragically, you know, on the floor of a jungle and uh, it's come from the sky and it's sort of recounting its last days in the air. Very sad story. Yes, I quite like that one too. Um, that was based on a Werner Herzog um, documentary about a woman who was the sole survivor of an air crash. 
uh, in South America. And I think Herzog himself was supposed to be on the plane. He was scouting locations for one of his early movies and he missed the flight. Otherwise, he would have been killed. Um, and when she accompanies Herzog years later to go back to the location, they find all of the wreckage still in the jungle, covered in vines, and the, the jungle has reclaimed it. So that was the image that um, sparked that story for me. Oh, that's incredible. That's almost as good as your story. So we can hear that you have an accent. You're from Ireland, and I'm reliably informed you come from the town just over from the one that Liam Neeson came from. That's correct, <laughs> yes. What are you saying? <laughs> Can't hear it at all, Chris. But you, you work at the um, at Museums Victoria, and this has actually led you to write a couple of other books. Tell us about those. They're about triceratops. Yes, um, basically, um, after Mammoth came out, um, the museum hired me as their editor in residence because suddenly I'm an expert in the voices of fossils. <laughs> they ne had a, niche, very niche. Yes, a very <laughs> niche um, market, but um, I've cornered it. The, they acquired a triceratops specimen, the most complete that's ever been discovered by humanity, 87% complete. And it's now on show at uh, Melbourne Museum. And so I had to create a suite of books um, to accompany the opening of the exhibition, a big coffee table book, and I've written a couple of kids' books for them as well. So, oh, how fantastic. Um, yes, I find myself um, plunged into the world of paleontology, even though I am no expert. Well, look, Nick Earls, the Australian writer, has said of your book, Here Be Leviathans, this is not a story collection, it's a drug none of us knew existed. <laughs> <laughs> He's really tapped into something there. Well, let's also meet Dr. Kath Kenny, who's with us today. She's an essayist, an arts reviewer and researcher, and her writings appeared in all kinds of publications that you will have read. She's a board member also of the Sydney Writers' Room and an associate member of the Centre for Media History. Hi, lovely to have you here, Kath. Thanks so much for having me. I'm still getting used to that doctor title. Yes. It hasn't been that long. Yes, congratulations yeah. on your PhD. Yeah. In fact, your PhD informed a book that you've just published mm. called Staging a Revolution. A history, it's about the history of women in Australian theatre in the 1970s. What a rich, rich period to be looking at. How did you find the story? Well, I, I was looking at this idea when I saw the rise of feminism now with the Me Too movement and so much else going on with women telling their personal stories, I was thinking, how did women do consciousness raising in the 70s? And at that same time, Bernadette Brennan had written her literary biography of Helen Garner. And there was two pages in that which talked about Helen Garner, this is the pre-monkey grip Helen Garner, where she was part of this theatre group at the Pram Factory in Melbourne, which put on the first play of the women's liberation movement. And I thought, wow, that's that's so interesting because my idea of the Pram Factory was David Williamson and Don's party. But in fact, I learned that he was there for five minutes and it wasn't all blokey, ochre, Aussie stories. It was this kind of hotbed of women's theatre that um, Helen was part of, but a whole lot of other women were involved in it was this kind of flourishing theatre movement, part of what they call the cultural renaissance of the second wave. Well, yeah. you say renaissance, but in my mind, I think of ratbaggery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it was pretty wild stuff what that was yeah. going on there. Oh, gosh, it was this period where the police were coming into plays and taking people, um, actors off stage for saying swear words. And the women got up on stage and they wore these 
fake penises and swore and had this scene where they talked about um, their bodies and sex and it was kind of this really new kind of conversation that people weren't having. Like women who came to watch it thought, oh, my God, I didn't know we could talk about these things or talk about how we felt as women, which was one of the exercises they used to develop the play. And it really sounds like from your book that the theatre scene was the hand in the glove of what was going on around culturally at the time and also coming into legislative forums as well. Yeah. So um, a lot of them were involved in activism, like Helen was involved in the early abortion rights movement. And when the women decided that they um, were replaying all these stories of Australian women's history, they needed a man He came along, his name was Vic Marsh, an actor from Perth, who was at that point in Sydney on charges of being arrested after taking six tabs of acid and walking around the streets. And uh, his partner, Carmen Lawrence, came to the rescue. Carmen Lawrence was at that point a 23-year-old psychology tutor. And she said, yes, let's go and do this play in Melbourne. And she ended up being um, on the sidelines, helping them knit together the scenes because it was very much of a, of a review style of show. And at the same time, she was establishing the women's electoral lobby in Beatrice Faust's lounge room. So there was a lot going on. They were at the front of moratorium marches and the pram factory was an, a really sort of centre of a lot of activism and as well as a new kind of art. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, and I'm just thinking Carmen Lawrence, one time premier of... Western Australia. Of Western Australia and then, and then Minister for Women. And in the in a Labor government yeah. federally, yes. Yeah. And, and quite sort of a notable figure there yeah. as part of the history. Well, let's turn to the books you've both read for us. Chris Flynn, we'll start with you and Julia Langbean's American Mermaid. Well, to American Mermaid, it's hardly a surprise to learn that Julia Langbean was a sketch and stand-up comedian for many years before writing this book. And she also wrote a viral comedy blog called The Bruni or Brunei Digest, which reviewed the New York Times critic Frank Bruni's restaurant reviews every week, which sounds like a hilarious idea. But it is a surprise to learn that she holds a doctorate in art history and is also the author of a non-fiction book about that. It's about caricature painting in 19th century France, which did come out of uh, left field for me. She's from Chicago, but she now lives outside of Paris with her family and has written American Mermaid, which is pretty much an overnight success. Chris, let's set up the story or indeed stories because there's at least two going on. (laughs) Shall we start with the delightful Penelope Schleiman? So Penelope Schleiman is an English, high school English teacher in Connecticut. Very frustrated by her job. She's got no money, not really got much in the way of prospects in life. And like a lot of uh, frustrated creatives, she writes a novel. The novel is American Mermaid, and it is a very earnest, um, very serious, sort of eco-feminist fable about a girl who is who grows up in a wheelchair. Um, she's she's differently abled and um, assumes that she can't walk, raised by her parents, but becomes very depressed. And at age twenty four, decides to, in a very um, 
macabre and black, blackly comic scene, decides to wheel herself into the ocean to drown herself. And when she does so, um, lo and behold, her funny little legs turn into a tail and it turns out that she has been a mermaid all along and didn't know. They've managed to keep her from the water this whole time. You've said that so beautifully, Chris, because it is it is very darkly comic. It is very black humour. And I have to say the first sentence of this novel just made me burst out laughing. I have never done that before. <laughs> it is a funny book. It does take things to certain extremes uh, in that if that alone was the premise, then you'd be happy enough. But of course, the book that Penelope writes, she initially self-publishes it. It starts to do really well. Then commercial publishers step in and it becomes an absolute enormous success. There's an, there's some nice stuff in there about um, what it means for someone who always wanted to write a book and who finally has written one and it is extremely successful and her struggling to cope with the fact that she is now famous and supposedly wealthy, even though she hasn't seen any of the money yet because her royalties don't get paid until much later. <laughs> um, but everyone expects her to behave in a certain way. Um, and of course, they sell the movie rights. And this is where the crux of the story takes place, is that um, the movie rights are sold and she decides to quit her job um, against everyone's advice and fly out to LA, rent herself a little service department, a little bleak um, service department in Century City and help to write the screenplay with two very flamboyant characters, uh, Randy Reynolds and Murphy Dysack, who are screenwriters <laughs> who instantly see the potential in her um, eco-feminist fable of it becoming a sexy mermaid in a clamshell bra um, Marvel-type action flick. Yeah, rather than the androgynous eco-warrior who strangely has no sex drive. <laughs> That's right. That's right. They are appalled by this and they say, no, 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 she has to have have desire for everyone. That's right. It's a total rewrite. And this is where the trauma and, and the trouble begins. But yes, it's a, a professional internet presence called Stem Hollander, who first uh, brings American Mermaid to the world's attention. He's a, in his mid-40s, he's got a floppy blonde fringe and a cheeky grin and he's a Segway salsa dancer. Anyway, he's quite fond of this book. So then it gets mentioned on the Today Show and then all of a sudden it's being sold in pallets at Costco. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's this sort of, you know, bizarre 21st century take on literary success. But then, you know, the, as you say, these film agents are calling and they're saying, oh, this is an action film waiting to happen. And she's got no idea at all. And the first thing they want to do is rewrite it so that it, uh, the falling into the water happens on prom night. <laughs> Which is, of course. When it's a Carrie meets something else. You know, this kind of brilliant upending of of the sensitivity that she's so earnestly created. And they say, look, it's just perfect for Hollywood's new hunger for lady plots. <laughs> and what's clever about this book, though, is that you initially feel some sympathy for Penelope because she's caught up in the, in the maelstrom of all this and the absurdity of it and is constantly trying to fight against the screenwriters to preserve the integrity of her story. And it's a losing battle she's fighting. But as the book goes on, 
and you are exposed to the actual novel she wrote, which appears initially as excerpts, and you think, oh, we're going to get a few excerpts from the book. But you end up actually reading pretty much the whole book that she wrote. And it is desperately earnest and quite absurd. And you, you sort of, your sympathies change a little bit. Yeah. And, you can, and you can see the point of the screenwriters that maybe they're right. Maybe it should just be an action flick because... Um, what what she wanted to do, no one really would ever see that movie. Because let's just quickly go over the plot of The Real American Mermaid. Her dad, Dean Grange, and her mum have brought her up. They had a surgeon, the mysterious <laughs> Musha Hero, when she was very, very baby, fishlet baby, um, separate what would have been her fin or right. her tail, sorry, her tail into two legs. Um, and then somehow Dean, the father's become very, very wealthy in the eco arena. And as she gets older, the Silvio is her name, the mermaid, her father's interests have gone into either brilliance or devilry, but he's working in turning fracking into eco-energy, but in fact he hasn't at all. And he has his master plan. He says, I'm explaining it. You can see how nuts it is. He's yes. decided he's going to go and find all the other mermaids and turn them into slave labour to perpetuate this, you know, mythological, eco-friendly fracking venture. <laughs> exactly. So it becomes this sort of supervillain story um, from modest beginnings, it ends up being uh, yet another high stakes, uh, uh, the world is in peril story. So you can see why the screenwriters would have been would have been tempted to turn it into that right from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think at, by, by the end, uh, Penelope realises that Murphy and Randy are actually, well, while being, in her words, both assholes, they're also very smart and very caring. So maybe they're onto something. But let's just talk about the writing because this is mm. what I just found so lovely about this book. There were just moments where I had to put the book down and, and just have a good old laugh. <laughs> Right, well, and I think her background in sketch comedy writing and as a stand-up comedian really comes to the fore, particularly in the scenes where Penelope is um, bantering back and forth with Randy and Murphy. We get these uh, long sort of dialogue scenes that are sometimes written in the form of emails or instant messages that they're sending to each other, which are absolutely hilarious um, back and forth and in which she's desperately trying to maintain some sort of sense of... of um, of integrity, and they are just coming up with ridiculous ideas um, to make the story even more bonkers than it already is. And that's for, and they're very satisfying. Those those passages they do stand and start quite stark contrast to the excerpts from the novel. I must say, mm. yes. And there are other moments like there's a pool party on the top of a <laughs> hotel in LA, which is just genuinely funny and fun and, it, you know, there are far too many margaritas or too, far too much sangria, I can't remember, and it's it's just so witty and so funny the way that event unfolds. I also really liked the moment with Pamela, the principal, who she informs um, that she's going to be leaving teaching. And, and I'll just read a little bit of that. I told my principal Pamela, a nice lady with a nut brown pelt helmet, that I was leaving Holy Cross and moving to LA. I was surprised 
at how sad she seemed about it, not merely annoyed about the hassle of replacing me, but disheartened. You've been such a gift to our students. They just loved you. She shook her tufted head and looked down at her desk, a bombed city of paper towers. <laughs> I love it. It's just this great little little moment of a principal that you know, tells us about the sort of decline in public education and the thankless task of being a teacher. Well, you can't blame Penelope for wanting to chuck it all in and, and go off to LA and try and make a go of it there, um, even though she has no real clue what she's doing. So the question, I mean, this is a debut and um, I think you know, people are sitting up straight and going, my goodness, who is this person? You know, how has she, she pulled off what is you know, at least initially an extraordinary uh, opening you know, to a book? What do, you, what do you think about its success? Um, I am a little bit taken aback because um, I think it's a very strong premise which kind of runs out of steam a little bit. Um, I found myself, the laughs were decreasing as time went on and I think I was just becoming used to the idiom in which she writes. I think it starts off really strongly and has got some great ideas, but um, I'm, I'm not entirely certain that it pays off in the end. So it is getting great press. Um, it's got lots of famous people raving about it. But it has just come out, I think. Um, it's just come out in Australia. So it'll be interesting to see how it does. Mm -hmm. To be fair, I think a lot of books do exactly that. And a lot right. of those <laughs> by very well-practised writers, you know. Totally, absolutely. <laughs> how many books have, steam. That's right. How many books have you read? You think, oh, this is a great premise, but it just doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. And, and so many books are just 100 pages too long and perhaps... That's, that's absolutely like... <laughs> right. All books. <laughs> Pretty much. There's nothing wrong with writing short, people. Uh, but we are told at the end, the final um, chapter of this book is actually, a, well, it's an epilogue and uh, it's advanced praise for tickets to the gun show, uh, which is by Penelope Schleyman of American Mermaid fame. She tells the story of a United Airlines flight attendant who discovers during a botched hijacking that she's a world-class sniper. <laughs> 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 I'm there for that one. I would yes, read that. Yes, yes, I think that perhaps this is just the beginning of uh, something fantastic with Julia Langbein, and I'm really glad I read it, even though it's not perfect. Well, what'll be really funny will be if, uh, and re really meta will be if it ends up being made into a movie. <laughs> and totally botched. <laughs> a movie about a book that's being made into a movie and, yeah, and they'll make a mess of it. <laughs> Chris, I think you should be on board. Get Liam Neeson on the phone now. He can play the pilot of the plane or perhaps the errant father who uh, has split the mermaid's tail in two. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. Perfect. Okay, we're on. Uh, that one is called American Mermaid and it is by Julia Langbein and it's published in Australia by text. Well, now to the anniversary by Stephanie Bishop. She's an Australian writer based between here and the UK 
She has three previous books. The Other Side of the World was much lauded and won Reading's Prize for New Fiction in that year and also the Arbia Literary Fiction Book of the Year. This new book is about a relationship between Lucy, an author whose pen name is J.B. Blackwood, and Patrick a much older man and a celebrated filmmaker and theorist. He's a guest lecturer at Lucy's University when they meet and she becomes his star student. Now, this is obviously a problematic relationship straight away, but somehow Lucy and Patrick appear outwardly at least to have overcome or at least managed this and have been together, indeed married for 20 years or so when we meet them. Early on, Lucy learns that she's won a major literary prize, which is to be presented in New York. Her agent advises her not to tell Patrick because he has a big mouth and he won't be able to keep a secret and the information can't be leaked. So she books them on this rather luxurious cruise, which will take them on a holiday ending in Japan, and then they'll catch a plane to New York. But one night at sea, a storm hits and in unclear circumstances, Patrick falls from the ship and is lost at sea. Kath, it's quite an opening, isn't it? Yeah, all that happens pretty quickly and there's lots of sort of foreboding at the beginning. Like the first time they get together, it's a rainy night. She arrives at his flat and his plants are dead. He won't let her go the next day. It's not really clear, like someone might see her, but... She has to get out at some point. Then he brings back carnations, which are kind of these really funereal flowers. And you sort of know this isn't going to go well, but they do have this long relationship where she feeds into his films, although she's not credited. Apparently that won't be good for the publicity, he tells her. Mm. And he also, to be fair, is an editor and a sort of co-conspirator with her stories that she writes. Yeah, so it, it's um, not... All bad, but it was never going to end well, was it? Well, well, let's get to that. At the heart of the story is this creative relationship they have. That uh, film that you mentioned, at the beginning of the relationship, she shows him this film or this story she's working on and he says, oh, this will make a great film and recasts it and makes the film. And, in fact, it's his most successful thing ever (laughs) and she's never credited for it in any way. It's so problematic. But he's also quite good at helping her bring her work into reality, into the real world. Yeah, I think that like a lot of creative relationships, you need someone who can support you and often that is another creative person who can say yes, no, maybe not this. And he really becomes like it's hard to tell where one stops and one starts when she describes that relationship. But parts of it reminded me a little bit of that Meg Wallitzer um, novel, The Wife, that was made into a film recently starring Glenn Close where he's about to receive the Nobel Prize and a journalist discovers that actually she's been writing his books all along and it's not that extreme but it has sort of shades of that story Mm -hmm. too. Although you never quite can put your finger on it because they do get on and we're told, Kath Kenny, that they have a lot of incredible sex. Yes, yeah. We're not just yeah. told, it's described for us. Yeah, yeah. Quite intimately. And so, yes, there is a relationship there. That initial thing where after their first night together, he insists that she doesn't leave the flat is very odd and very disturbing. So we are still 
not comfortable about the power differential between them, the age gap, and also this professional toing and froing. Yeah, but we're, and we're also just hearing the story from JB Blackwood or Lucy's point of view, so we're not really sure what to believe too. Like we're hearing her retrospective narration of what happened and he's gone, he's disappeared. So we don't really know mm. if we're getting the true story and I think that's part of what the book's about. It's, it's about the writer's um, narration and the reader's desire to make certain stories out of it or read things into it that maybe aren't there or to twist narratives around. <laughs> and that that is going on constantly throughout the book of people wanting to understand her through her books, the book in the book that she's written, and yet she's constantly saying it's just a book. You can't read anything about me, the author, through this book or the books that I've written. Yes, and how many times have we heard authors yeah. protesting about that? And rightly so, I suppose. The book is, is a journey, but it's also a mystery. So there's multiple locations, London, then Japan, then New York, and, and then eventually Sydney. And we'll get to that in a moment. But the mystery is about what happened on deck on this cruise ship, which is off the coast of Japan, somewhere between Japan and Russia. And... They had been arguing. They'd had incredible sex once again down in their cabin and there'd been an argument. He went upstairs to the gambling room and was blowing everything when she went up. They went outside. He was in his bathrobe. I don't know how if you're allowed to gamble in your bathrobe. I haven't been on a cruise. But then there was an argument and he said something to her, which we don't know what was said until right at the end. And she says, I'll go inside to get him a glass of water. And when she came back, he was gone and their man overboard alarms were going. It's infuriating because we're left with that for such a long time. Yeah, it's this big mystery, but um, she is in shock and you end up on this journey with her to and through interviews with various police, but then at the same time, and she's got to go to the morgue to identify his body. In Japan, yes. Yeah, but at the same time she's got to get to New York for this ceremony and her agent and her publisher get involved and, and they're trying to be sympathetic, but it's almost like they also want this other part of her, which is this successful author, to go through with this incredible honour, it's sort of like the Booker Prize that yeah, she's got or something. Yeah, we don't know what the prize it's is, but it's really, huge. It's yeah. a global yeah. sort of career-making And prize. she just walks through it all like this sort of um, shattered, traumatised woman, which is kind of what she, she is, if you believe, her take on the relationship as well. Mm. Yeah. Yes, yeah. she's sort of medicated and, and slightly sort of drunk as well as she works her way through the crowds of the, you know, and the interviews and the signings and things. And then she ends up on her sister's doorstep, Meg, in Sydney, who's got her own problems going on, a husband and, and a child and a relationship that's, you know, having some hard times. And then we're taken into the backstory of their childhood. And it turns out there have been problems there, which was begun when the mother of the two girls just disappeared one day 
and never contacted them again. And they didn't know whether she was dead or alive. And soon enough, her father replaced her with her stepmother and their lives went on. But their mother is this continuous absence in both their lives. Yeah. And the mother, there's a suggestion that she might have fallen into a river. So there's all this sort of terrible things that happen by water. And thinking back, when she goes inside to get him a glass of water, as the excuse at least she tells us, whether or not it's true, that's for readers to find out, um, he's, she's doing that to help him. And then he goes into the water. Yeah. And... <laughs> it's like water is the solution and the problem. It's like, yeah, it's a very wet, wet book. Mm. So I guess... Just back to our conversation earlier about, you know, the relationship between the student and the the lecturer. You know, how did you see that ultimately? Did you see it resolve? Were you, did you come to? No, look, I've, I found it really uncomfortable at first because I thought, oh, are we, are we here in another campus novel, this sort of cliche of the professor and the student and you just think, oh, here we go again. It's another um, campus novel. But then you think, well, you know, is it is it redeemed because she is a success? Is this the sort of way that women can have success in our kind of very patriarchal world? Yeah, I don't, I'm not really sure. He, he wasn't an attractive character to me. You didn't like no. his leather jacket and his slick back hair? He was quite proud of himself, wasn't he? No, maybe it was his methods that I didn't like. He, in class, he made a really obvious sort of um, picked her out as the favourite and um, the other students were really kind of alienated and appalled and I just like, oh, gosh, what a terrible teacher he is. And Yeah. Yeah. Somehow I wasn't as bothered by their relationship as I was by other parts of, of the book. So it comes together at the end. It's surprising, actually. Um, how did you feel? Did you feel it resolved itself? Um, in a way that was just quite harrowing and upsetting because the conclusion, which, um, again, Cassie, I don't know if we can describe what happens apart from saying that she loses nearly everything in her life. Yeah, well, there's lots that we can't talk about because this really is a mystery and you don't mm-hmm. find out some mm-hmm. information, a number of pieces of information until right at the end. And that's not... a a criticism, that's actually, I think that works. But there are these pieces to the puzzle which, when they put together, make it quite a, a different book to the one I, I thought I was reading. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the other piece of the puzzle that I didn't realise until much later in my second reading of the book, that this actually picks up on her earlier book, The Other Side of the World, which is set 40 years earlier in Cambridge with another couple, another heterosexual couple. He's an academic, she's an artist, and they also decide to go on a boat journey, but this time it's to leave Cambridge for the warmer climates of Perth. Um, In the anniversary, Patrick also at one point asks um, Lucy to go to the warmer climates of California with her. And in the story set 40 years earlier, they have two children, two girls, and the mother is at one point when they arrive in Perth left on her own with them and she actually has, I think, a 
element of postnatal depression, we'd call it now. The girls get sick, she struggles, she gets quite violent at some point and she just leaves the girls. Those two girls were called Lucy and May, the two characters we meet again in the anniversary. <laughs> Lucy being the main character, the J.B. Blackwood, the author, whose mother has disappeared. This then is the continuation in some ways of that story. And J.B. Blackwood's novel also has some callbacks to her previous work in it, we find out. So stories within stories, novelists within novels. Yes. Interesting book. I think uh, it's very easy to read and I think it will be quite successful. It's called The Anniversary and it's by Stephanie Bishop and it's published by Hachette. Thank you both. Fantastic reviews. I learned a lot from your readings of both of those books. Let's just hear what you might like to recommend before we part company. First to you, Chris Flynn, what would you suggest these are a good thing to read at the moment? Well, my reading habits have changed quite dramatically in the last few years. Um, I used to be quite a prolific reader and I've become a lot more selective, um, especially with regards to the dreaded literary fiction, which um, which is doing my head in the last few years. So I've kind of returned to my... Hang on, f- hang on, why so? You can't leave us with that <laughs> hanging. What is it about literary fiction that's, that's driving you nuts? Well, to quote Voltaire, all styles are good except the boring. <laughs> and I find so much literary fiction so very tedious um, and boring. So I'm, and I'm, I'm fed up with it. <laughs> Sorry, I've probably made a thousand I, enemies now. But uh, I salute your honesty and <sighs> I support your decision to exercise it. Well said. Oh, thank you. Um, I, I had that quote in my head, all styles are good except the boring. And I, for some reason, I thought it was someone else, but it was actually Voltaire who said it. And I went to look up some other Voltaire quotes. He had some perlers, didn't he? <laughs> Common sense is not so common. We can all <laughs> good agree with that. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, dis- I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. That's exactly what I was just trying to say to you about your mm. outrageous comment. So there you go. I would have been quoting Voltaire without, without knowing. And um, my favourite, um, on his deathbed, he was asked to renounce the devil. And he said, and I'll put on my best Liam Neeson here, <laughs> this is no time for making new enemies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, note to self. I might have, if I have the opportunity, I will steal that line. That is a good one. Um, all of which is to say, I have returned to my first love, um, science fiction. And um, I recently read um, the British writer Adrian Tchaikovsky. He has a series called Children of Time. And I recently read the third in the series um, the Children of Time, Children of Ruin, and Children of Memory. And they are about mankind's attempt to colonize distant worlds but they accidentally uplift animals. So they evolve into intellectually superior species to us. And these are spiders, squid and crows. And they end up um, leaping ahead of us in the evolutionary chain. And they are very satisfying books. Um, So much going on. I don't know how science fiction writers do it. They um, have such um, wild original minds. And they're never boring. (laughs) I think Adrian Tchaikovsky must have written that with you in mind, Chris, just to appeal to your particular... It's just for me. I'm I'm probably the only person (laughs) in Australia who's read it. (laughs) Sounds fantastic. Okay, that's called Children of Time, and we'll put links uh, to all the books that we've mentioned on the program page if if you want to look them up. Lovely. Okay, I love science fiction, and that's a whole new one for me. What about you, Kath Kenny? What have you read? Uh, I've been catching up on some books from a few years ago, so... I recently read 
Nadi Simpson's The Song of the Crocodile, which was just the most stunningly beautiful book that I've read in such a long time. And she's just a gorgeous writer. It's about her um, community in northwestern New South Wales. It's a story of a generation of, of three families, but it's also about her Indigenous stories that come in to live alongside all the terrible things that are happening in her town. Yes, it's a much-loved book. Yeah. And I recently read Edwina Preston's Bad Art Mother, which is another story. I know, Cassie, this is your kind, the kind of books about authors <laughs> are not your favourite <laughs> thing at all. But it is a fantastic story of a kind of Gwen Harwood-type figure who ends up also having a conflict between her art and motherhood and... Yeah, it's beautifully told. I do love Gwen Harwood. I will have to get to that one as well. Well, thank you both for reading these books, these two novels about, funnily enough, novelists and also both with so much water in them as well. Thank you both. It's been wonderful to have you. (laughs) Thank you very much, Cassie. (laughs) Thanks, Cassie. Dr Kath Kenny is an author, essayist and researcher and her book Staging a Revolution is a history of women in Australian theatre in the 1970s and it was just published. Well worth a look. And Chris Flynn is editor-in-residence at Museums Victoria and the author of numerous books including the brilliantly inventive Mammoth and Here Be Leviathans. Coming up on The Bookshelf, an interview with Rebecca Mackay, whose new novel, I Have Some Questions For You, is in bestseller lists around the world. We spoke about that one last week. But first, a quick look back at an Australian novel that's been doing really well. Tracy Lien was born and raised in southwestern Sydney, and her debut novel, All That's Left Unsaid, has been long listed for this year's Stella Prize, and this week was announced winner of the debut category of the Indie Book Awards. Here's Tracy Lien on the bookshelf late last year. I really needed the distance away from Australia in order to be able to write about Australia. It's like trying to read the label from inside the jar. You know, I'm not sure I would have been able to write this novel or, or to be able to think critically about Australia if I was still in it. Because when I reflect on my time in Australia, I think about how I was just trying to get on with it. I was just trying to do well. I was just trying to fit in. And it wasn't until I was in America that I thought, oh, why did I have to keep trying so hard to fit in? If I'm a citizen of Australia, if it's the only home I've ever known, why wasn't it easy? But here's the thing, like having the distance also made me miss Australia. It made me realise how much I care about Australia. And I'm critical because I care, and which is why I chose to write this novel, which is why I chose to like engage with these ideas of like where we are on matters of race, on xenophobia, on refugees. So yeah, I think my novel is in two different conversations. And one is that it's in conversation with Australia's narrative about itself. I think Australia exports this narrative about itself where, you know, we're the nation of blonde surfers, we're the nation of... Uh, farmers in the outback. And sure, that that is a part of Australia. 
but we're also Cabramatta. We're also Marrickville. We're also Auburn. You know, if you just look at the, the census from 2021, half of Australians have a parent who was born overseas. You know, if you look at the major cities like Sydney and Melbourne, 28% of respondents are have Asian ancestry. Like that's that's Australia. And then the other conversation that I see my novel participating in is with works like, say, Under the Feet of Jesus by uh, Helena Maria Viramontes or Beautiful Country by Qian Julie Wang or Sour Heart by Jenny Zhang. And those are narratives where you read about these immigrants or these refugees and you say, oh, if only, you know, oh, if only they spoke English, their lives would be so much easier. Or if only they weren't undocumented, if only they had citizenship, their lives would be so much better. And that might all be true, but I see my novel as building on top of those ideas. And what, what I'm trying to say is even if you are a citizen of a country like Australia, even if you speak impeccable English, the society will still throw curveballs at you you will still at times be made to feel like you don't belong. So I see it as continuing that conversation. Tracy Lien, author of All That's Left Unsaid, this week announced winner of the debut category of the Indie Book Awards. I'm Cassie McCullough, and if you heard our last episode of The Bookshelf, you'll remember the conversation we had with Double J's Zan Rowe about the novel I Have Some Questions For You by the US author Rebecca Mackay. It's a campus novel that delves into the true crime genre as its protagonist, Bodie Kane, a successful film professor and podcaster, interrogates a mystery from her past, the murder of her college roommate back in the 90s. Now, I loved this book, and so did Zan, and I actually saw via our ABC Book Club Facebook group that a few of you actually went out and bought it after hearing that conversation, which is great. So I hope you're loving it too. Now, my co-host Kate Evans caught up with Rebecca Mackay recently and their conversation zoomed in on the ideas that shape this book, which I found really interesting. I hope you do too. Now, Rebecca, it's a novel about a crime, but it's not using the conventions of crime fiction. It's playing with true crime. It's also a campus novel, story about friendship, coming of age in a way. So I'm curious if you were to think of your novel like on a bookshelf with the other books that it might be in conversation with or writing against or influenced by, I mean, what, what might you put on that shelf next to I Have Some Questions For You? Yeah. On the one hand, you know, I think of it in relation to other campus novels. And um, there are one, there are, there are versions, there are campus novels that do just a beautiful job of getting across whatever campus. Um, but there are ones I can think of that are wonderful at getting across the American boarding school campus. Um, there's a novel that that very few people even in the U.S. have read, and, and I don't know if it's gotten to Australia, um, but a wonderful book called The Virgins by the author Pamela Ahrens, E-R-E-N-S. And it's a small press book. It's about uh, a death uh, rather than a murder that happened uh, on the campus of a, a, a New England boarding school in the 1970s. And she does just a spectacular job. Um, there are 
other, I, I, you know, there, there are novels like Prep by Curtis Sittenfeld, where you can tell that the author really knows what she's talking about with the boarding school environment. There are a lot of novels that uh, romanticize the boarding school in a very unrealistic way, in the same way that there are films that do the same thing. I, I, one of my favorite parts of this is that on the screen, when they show any kind of it could be a university campus as well, but especially a boarding school campus. It is always autumn and the leaves are always orange. And <laughs> it's why, like it was always know. summer before the war. Right, right. And everyone's wearing a sweater, you know. Um, and uh, and there are things that people can get wrong. Um, so I was writing, in, in a way, I was writing against that. I do know the boarding school world very well. Uh, I attended one, although as a day student, my husband teaches at one. And so I actually live on the campus of a boarding school as an adult. Um, so it was a bit of setting the record straight. And then I think that it's in conversation, certainly with the lineage, at least, of the detective novel, um, specifically the kind of sort of citizen detective. And, you know, we used to get, say, Miss Marple kind of, you know, coming in and and uh, she's not a professional detective. She's not the police, but she figures things out. Um, the podcaster in this day and age makes a lot of sense as the citizen detective. Uh, so I think it is in conversation with books like that as well. Uh, but ultimately, this is a realist novel. Um, I, as you said, you know, I'm, I'm, it is crime fiction without the conventions of the genre of crime fiction. My, the idea here was, okay, you know, let's take the kind of case that everybody gets obsessed with, beautiful, young, dead, wealthy girl, and let's actually look at that including the underbelly of wrongful incarceration, including what, you know, what that public attention does to the case. So, you know, I would say that it's it's simply also in conversation with realist literary novels, especially feminist ones, since we're getting into so many of those issues. Yes. And as I was reading, and thank you too for telling us about the Pamela Aarons novel, which I, I don't know. Um, and as I kept coming across the uh, the lists of those familiar type of murders um, and crimes against women, I was also thinking about a novel that you probably haven't come across. Um, an Australian writer, Charlotte Wood, has written a book called The Natural Way of Things that references all of those stories that you sort of know and then she mm. takes them somewhere else, not in a realist way, I'd, I'd have to say. I'll but look those, for it. Yeah, those, those lists that sort of circulate both in your head and in the culture, I think, are referenced in, in really powerful ways. Um, mm. It's also a novel about changing friendship and about sort of coming of age too, which I thought was an important part of it, those shifting perceptions both of the self and all of those relationships. Right, yeah. You know, for for I wanted to write a coming-of-age novel that was not from the point of view of an adolescent. Um, I, you know, that when you write from the point of view of an adolescent, you, you tend to end up writing for a young audience, and that's not really my audience. I wanted it fundamentally to be someone looking back. And I had a choice then of whether I would jump around in time. Maybe we go back there in time. Maybe at the top of one chapter, it says 1995. But I didn't want to do that. For one thing, I'd done that in my my previous novel, The Great Believers. I uh, didn't want to do the same thing immediately. And then I didn't want to have long passages of memory. Um, it, I have a pet peeve when I'm reading fiction 
of, you know, someone is peeling an egg in their kitchen and they suddenly have a memory and it's 17 pages long in complete chronological order with absolute detail of something that happened 50 years earlier and the wind was blowing from the southeast and I coughed <laughs> and you go that's not the way memory works that is you know I, I understand that's how it needs to happen for film it doesn't need to happen that way on the page and so I wanted to uh, take us back in a very fractured uh, not entirely trustworthy memory and, and deal with the ways memory is fallible and subjective. And so it's it's a coming of age in the sense that we we do look back on her original coming of age, um, but kind of obliquely. And then there's she's coming of age again. She's she's making peace with the the teenager she was and and who she's become in the world. Yes, I particularly appreciated the way that you did that because it makes you think about the nature of memory and whether, you know, I'd be able to remember a particular day from when I was 17 and I particularly would hate to have to stand up in court and talk about it. It just Right. Yeah. So I, yeah. I really liked the way that you both put that on the page but also make us interrogate our own sense of, of memory. What an absolute cracker of a book. Rebecca Mackay, thank you so much for speaking to us on The Bookshelf. Thank you. The American novelist Rebecca Mackay talking to Kate Evans about some of her ideas and influences. Her new book, I Have Some Questions For You, is getting rave reviews. It's published by Hachette. Now, next time on The Bookshelf, it's a monthly book club edition. And joining us will be two bright stars of contemporary Australian writing. Robbie Arnott, who's developing a cult following for his strange and beautiful books. Most recently, the heart-achingly delicate Limber Lost, about one boy's life over the course of a Tasmanian summer in the 1940s. Also with us will be Hannah Kent, who shot to fame with her novel Burial Rites, set in 19th century Iceland and based on the true story of a woman condemned to death for her part in the brutal murder of two men. And the theme for this month's book club is weather and all the wonderful and evocative ways it appears in fiction. Maybe you want to add one or two of your favourites over on the ABC Book Club Facebook group. That's it for The Bookshelf. I'm Cassie McCullough. See you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.